Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to mention some of the countries that had a lot of listeners over the last few weeks. And I wanted to let you know, too, that people seem to be delighted when I mention the country that they're from. And so I'm so happy. I get these emails and messages uh, saying, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad that it's big in my country or that I'm not the only one listening to it. I feel like I'm in good company. And there are places around the world that suddenly pop up and have a big audience for a particular episode. And as always, I'd love to find out what that is about and what speaks to you. And so, of course, with all of our listeners in the United States and in Canada, in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and our listenership that was really big in Germany, which is very powerful to me when we're talking about this kind of group think and the dangers of it. And I know people in Germany are really quite educated, more than I think any place around the world, to really learn about what can happen because it happened there and other places around them. And also Sweden. Many listeners in Sweden over the last few weeks. So if you live in Germany or Sweden, be in touch. Let me know again what speaks to you, what resonates. It's very meaningful to me, and I'd love to learn more about that. So for today, we have Emma Lehman. She is the host and producer of Gund a limited series investigative podcast now available on all platforms. Gund is a podcast about the troubled teen industry, a network of profit-incentivized behavior modification facilities for youth, ranging from wilderness programs to therapeutic boarding schools. Emma grew up outside of Washington, D.C. and is a recent graduate of UCLA. She's currently living in Los Angeles alongside her beloved cat named Garlic. Garlic, that's such a sweet name for a cat. Gund is Emma's second investigative podcast. Her first podcast, Texas Twiggy, explores the life and career of actress and producer Shelley Duvall. Both Gund and Texas Twiggy are available wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more about Gund at gundpodcasts.com. My talk with Emma was really powerful. Her story is one that is really important to be heard. Here's Emma now. so happy to be able to have Emma Lehman on the show today. I think it is so important that we get to cover some of the subjects that really speak to your heart too. And I would love for you to take a moment and introduce yourself and then we'll get started. So I'm an independent journalist and podcast producer based in Los Angeles. I produce limited series investigative shows And I am the host, writer, and producer of Gund, an investigative podcast about the troubled teen industry. 
really the way I think about it is that it's considered to be for troubled teens, but it's a troubled industry. And also the idea of being gooned, which is, uh, I think, a really good way of describing how people enter into the system against their will. So if you don't mind doing some defining of terms for us as we get started, go for it. For sure. So the troubled teen industry is a network of profit incentivized behavior modification facilities for youth. It can range from wilderness programs to therapeutic boarding schools. There's a lot of different classification schools will call themselves by several different names, youth ranches, camps. Um, but for the most part, you'll hear wilderness therapy or therapeutic boarding school or residential treatment center. And gooning is a, a term used in the survivor community to describe the transport process. You can think of it as legal kidnapping. Essentially, parents provide a transfer of temporary custody and their own uh, their consent for a company to come uh, usually in the middle of the night against the child's will and or without the child's knowledge to take them from their home and transport them to a troubled teen industry program, which could involve being driven. It could also involve being flown. Right. And from having talked to a lot of people who went through that experience, that experience in and of itself uh, starts off the trauma. And I think there's something about having the people who love you, who are there, I think, to protect you, might be either feeling like they're at their wits end or they've been kind of convinced that this is the right move for you or a necessary move for you, that there's been something very traumatizing about being taken away by people from your home, from your bed at times, and having your parents not stop them. Typically, if someone comes into your house uh, and is trying to take you away, your parents are going to be your first line of defense. And, you know, you can rely on them. But looking over, people saying, I looked over at my mom, I looked over at my dad, and they did nothing, or they seemed upset, they might not have realized that it was going to be that difficult or maybe sometimes that violent, um, but they still didn't stop it. And that also adds to the trauma of really wondering who is there to protect you anymore. Have you heard about those stories? Yeah, I part of part of Goond was I uh, was able to go undercover posing as a parent and talk to some uh, transport companies, which is what these gooning companies call themselves usually teen transport, youth transport. And the language that they use with parents, if you come into it not really understanding what this process involves, it's safe, secure, uh, trustworthy. And they really, they really kind of position parents for this process to be something that, you know, it's difficult, but it's necessary. And you hear from survivors you know, who even people to whom this happened decades ago, the one of the most lasting traumas that they say they experienced was, you know, being you're woken up, you're, oh my gosh, I'm being abducted. And then you see your parents in the hallway. And, and a lot of people remember very specifically, again, even if it's decades ago, they remember seeing their family being there. And several times posing as a parent, these companies kind of they tell you, you know, you can be there, but, you know, it's probably better if your child doesn't see you or they will emphasize, even before I had asked, they would say things like, you know, we're going to do it at night, like no one else will know. We're keeping this a discreet family matter. And so there's all, already this kind of positioning of this is something you don't want people to know about. This is kind of a shameful thing. At the same time, there's the cognitive dissonance of you're signing this contract, you're entering into this agreement for 
people to come and essentially kidnap your child. And I think that seeing the complicity of your family in that transport process very specifically is is something that a lot of survivors say is the most lasting trauma, even if they were in the industry for several years. Right. And I wonder also with this whole idea of parents not, I know we're launching into this sort of this specific thing and then we'll we'll broaden our discussion, but the idea of also saying to parents, so you don't have to be there. You know, it can seem like then that is, um, that's a notion that's to help to protect the parents from experiencing something that's difficult or that somehow it's going to be made more difficult for the child. I do know that at times, one of the reasons for that too, is that when parents see their child's reaction and they see how they're being treated or manhandled or womanhandled by people who clearly don't have any training in understanding psychology and understanding what this would do short-term or long-term, they've changed their mind. And I think some of these places are worried about losing a customer. I hate to bring it down to its bare bones, but I think that's part of the reason that sometimes they don't want the parents there. Yeah, and if you uh, if you read these documents that they give parents to sign, if you really get into the fine print, there's a, a lot of, you know, this is your deposit. You're, if you go back on it, we retain the deposit. There's a lot of language that indicates, you know, you're signing into this now like there's no going back. And I think that language is easy to overlook as just, you know, something you see in a contract as opposed to, something you might realize if you are there for that process. And it's it's very much there's an urgency that's emphasized. It's it's a sales tactic of, you know, do this now. You need this now. There's even on these websites, I say in Gund, looking at these websites, it's, you know, call now, act fast, flashing kind of almost like an infomercial. And that urgency that's emphasized, I think, is because... I was I was told by a representative for one of these companies that parents will call with 48 hours lead time. And it is that easy. They will send you. I had those documents in my inbox that same afternoon. And it was I was calling with the pretense that it was going to be several months of the future. And, and the rep was like, don't even worry. I get calls about doing this the same weekend. And that sort of act now, don't think about it, I think, is is the way that they get a lot of parents to kind of not have to think too hard about it until it's over. And, you know, and a lot of what I deal with in my field from people who taken in by fraudulent other people and by fraudulent organizations is that when there is a sales pitch, when people are being recruited, they are told not to delay. Um, they're told not to get in their head about it. They're told not to spend time uh, even doing research. Uh, because that's all going to be skewed and not to talk to people who have left, who have had a bad experience because they just don't know what they're talking about or they didn't take the program seriously or so everyone is discounted who's had a bad experience. And so I think it if it's rushed, it does keep you from being able to do the research that you need to do to know if this is going to be safe. It feels like another another motivator for them to keep this going really quickly. Exactly. And and then the language very similar to a cult and, and the language of kind of pitting parents against even views online, they may not know who wrote them, like very, very much setting up from the get go that you're going to see bad reviews. It's disgruntled children. It's they're not mature enough to understand yet that it helped them. They're just bitter from the get go. There's this positioning parents 
to sort of look at it as, well, these are just, again, disgruntled kids. And yeah, kind of discounting those negative reviews and looking at only the few positive reviews that they can find. And if you're applying to send your kid to a regular boarding school or to send your kid to college, it's a long process. There's emphasis on here are all our programs, look into them with this. It's very much an act now, a don't look into it too hard because, you know, what you find isn't going to be the truth. And that starts so early on in the process, which was something that was surprising to me in in reporting this, how quickly they really tried to get you into that mentality of just do it now. You know, talking about reviews, and we'll get more into this later too, when people will ask me, because I want to go over the signs of things to to watch out for, the things that you've learned, and I love that you've gone undercover, and I want to hear more about that. One of the things that I tell people when they want to see if something's potentially fraudulent is if they only have five-star reviews, 100% five-star reviews, because that's something they paid for, or they paid for a company to take off anything less than five stars. And also, because I've talked to people who have said I wasn't allowed to leave until I wrote a review that was stellar, even though I had been suffering basically the whole time I was there, or my parents were unable to get some of their money back until I wrote this review. So don't trust the reviews necessarily. Really talk to people who have left and also who have not had good experiences there. Really do your due diligence. Be a smart consumer, especially for your loved ones. And so I'm wondering for you about your interest in this and what drove you, because similar to you, this has not been my experience, but it just, it has drawn me in since the beginning of me hearing about it, and I haven't been able to put it down, similar to you. So tell me about what speaks to you about this. So I am not a survivor myself. I came across the TTI, I had done a another production, uh, Texas Twiggy, and it was about Shelley Duvall, who had appeared on the Dr. Phil show. So, of course, I started getting all the Dr. Phil recommendations in my YouTube, and it's a very common theme that he would send uh, usually to wilderness therapy programs, but the TTI in general, Dr. Phil, was a, a big channel into that. And I, I started seeing that and kind of had in the back of my mind, like, what is this? And this just seems like something I want to look into. And I found several organizations where people were coming forward with their story. There was a kind of viral Dr. Phil, uh, someone who had been on the Dr. Phil show who went viral and uh, known as the Cash Me Outside girl and kind of developed a hip hop career. And she ended up coming forward once she turned 18 about her experience being sent uh, away by Dr. Phil. And I started looking into this and I started talking to just people in my life about it and very quickly found that people who were very close to me had been sent away or knew people who had been, knew people who had worked in some of these places. And it was disturbing to to realize that people so close to me that I didn't know this about them, that they had been, had felt so ashamed and had been silenced for so long that it wasn't until I brought this up very specifically that they felt like they could share that with me. And it went from kind of a journalistic curiosity to something that was very close to me very quickly. And then from there, you see how many institutions it reaches into. And it it went from sort of a morbid curiosity to a, oh, this hits very close to home. And I think that was when I really started thinking, I want to get these stories out there. And there are some things 
that need to be a part of this conversation that I don't feel like I'm seeing as much. Mm, yes, right. And let's launch into what those things are. And just for you to know, I over the years, I've gotten requests and another one fairly recently from the Dr. Phil show to be on the show talking about different things. And I said to the producer, and so is a different name of a different person who's contacting me. So I, I guess I've told a bunch of different people now that if he changes his stance on sending people to things that really do them damage and do the family damage, I am happy to come on and lend my name to his show and, you know, be on there. But I can't now, unless he doesn't mind that I come on and talk about that. But I, I'm not going to kind of, it with my audience, it might give him some kind of interesting sort of by association credibility, which I do not want to do until he changes his stance on this. And so it's it might feel like a missed opportunity for media, but I'm not going to just, I can't I, until he says, I was wrong and here's how and don't do this uh, anymore. Um, but until that happens, I'm going to, I'm going to stay sidelined. Uh and so tell me about what you have found out and about your idea of going in undercover. Because that, that, that can be very stressful. Not everyone is made for that. So that takes some bravery. So tell me about that. So I, I there's a couple elements in Gund that I would categorize as undercover. And, and the first is calling schools, calling programs, calling the goons as a parent. That was... Apparently, I, I already sound like a middle-aged woman on the phone. So that one was, you know, I had my name, I had my email address, I kind of had my cover story, and I very much tried to construct a story that was, you know, my daughter, Ella, had been struggling with depression and isolating herself and had drank a beer at a pep rally as a sophomore in high school. Very kind of nothing that, to me, to anyone that I spoke with with a background in mental health would mean, you know, immediate inpatient intervention right now. And I I went into those calls kind of being worried. I was like, you know, these educational consultants are not going to recommend the troubled teen industry. Like, that's just a bridge too far. I probably should have come up with something more dramatic. And for the first call I get on within five minutes, and and I, I play that, that call in Gund within the first five minutes, she says, okay, well, your options are wilderness uh, or a residential treatment center. And the more that I talked to survivors about their experience and got on these calls, I felt like I was I was hearing all these perspectives and I was realizing how nuanced of an issue this is. And I there's a, a trade organization called NATSAP that's kind of the preeminent representative of this industry in legislation. They have conferences, resource sharing, and NATSAP is is looked at as sort of the the head of this industry to the extent that it is one entity. And I was really looking at, as a journalist, I was like, I, in good faith, I want to get every perspective. I feel personally like I very much know my opinion on this. I, I don't see any point where I could agree with these people. But at the same time, I, I wanted to know how they talk to each other about this industry, how they kind of talk to themselves about it. A lot of people in NATSAP are program directors, higher-ups. They've been in this industry for a long time. And I wanted to talk to these people. And I wanted, again, partially morbid curiosity, partially I felt like it was kind of my responsibility. If I've talked to 20-plus survivors and families, it only makes sense to, you know, talk to, I guess, what you could call the other side. And I ended up... Um, 
going to a conference, a regional conference for uh, NATSAP and sort of troubled teen industry facilities in the Idaho area. And it was a crazy experience. I don't know if I'm ever really going to be able to find the right words to describe it because coming off of, at that point, six months of reporting, of talking to people about their experiences, of really digging into this industry, going into that conference with that prior knowledge. And what I ended up finding, and I talk about this in Gund, is that it really was just your average trade show. And I was so worried going in, I'm sweating through my suit and I'm like, they're going to see through my cover story. They're going to, my questions are going to be too pointed. And there was just, I, I compare it a lot to the movie Get Out, where it felt like we had the same facts and arrived at such a different conclusion that I was like, am I am I missing something? And no one is talking about there had, at that point, it was a few months after a pretty publicized death in a NATSAP facility. At the time that I was there, that facility had still not lost its NATSAP membership. There was no discussion of that, no discussion of what has been a huge uptick in legislation lately. And it was just this sort of twilight zone if I was like, they're saying the quiet part out loud, I think is, is a phrase that I used a lot. And getting that audio and, and, you know, coming back home and kind of decompressing and listening back to it, I I worried that putting some of those clips in the show that people would think, well, that's just, that's a sentence taken out of context. And I would put in all the context and it didn't make it any better. And And it was... It was just this very, very strange experience of knowing that we were operating with the same facts. We had doubtless heard many of the same stories and had arrived at such a different conclusion. And being in those talks and just, it was difficult having to sit there and have them explain their methods or explain their outcomes or something I talk about in Gund is these quote-unquote studies that they put forth and explain why those studies work and just sitting there and and being like, no, this isn't like I have I have so much material to show you for why this isn't the case and why this is not the conclusion you should be arriving at. And it was it was very it really showed me kind of how this industry is still operating from the inside and how these people who are very high up in these programs, not just the day staff, but the the program directors and the admissions representatives, the way that they sort of keep themselves in this industry with a clear conscience. And it was a very important, the audio that I got aside, it was a, it was a very important perspective for me to have to understand when I'm reporting this, when I'm giving people this information, what's happening behind the scenes, kind of at the helm of this machine that has kept it running for so long. Mm. It, it is incredible. And yes, so your bravery uh, and just showing up there and kind of assuming something horrible is going to happen or you're going to be found out, I'm sure is very hard and that you persevered, which is fantastic. So you were able to get what you needed to get. It sounds to me like there's a certain boldness. I feel like organizations that have gotten away with things are bold. They will just come out and in a very calm way talk about what they provide and what they do. and. I hope at some point they no longer feel like they can do that with confidence and with that kind of slick presentation, like we got this. 
I want them to look as nervous as you did when you were arriving. I want them to be sweating through their shirts, but that's not going to happen until there's more legislation, until there's oversight, until they also either shut down or they learn to do this differently in a healthy way because I think teens and others do need support. I think sometimes they do need to get away from their family. I think the family thinks because they're the problem, but the family can often be the problem. And so I I think it it is good to be able to have resources available and places for them to go, but only if people are trained and it's healthy and the outcomes are verifiable and 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 people are watching what's happening. And so what from your sense of just their countenance, did you get a sense that they just felt protected and they could say whatever and promise whatever? It was kind of this echo chamber. It was a lot of things that, you know, if if you said that in a different context, of course, around survivors or activists, but if you if you when one clip that I that I use in Gund, a program director is talking about I'm really good at manipulating people to do things in a way that is convenient for me. <gasps> and wow. Or I'm not responsible for solving your problems. And maybe I am a bad therapist and stuff like that where and and you hear it in that clip, he says those things and it's the room laughs and and we move on. And I think that that kind of response again sort of pushing that boundary. It's okay, I can say this and everyone laughs and agrees and we're all chummy and what else can I say and what else can I do? And I think that gets especially dangerous with the studies and the research that they put forward where nobody is looking at it closely enough to see the flaws even just in the methodology before you even get to the conclusions that they draw. And so you, you know, get up on the stage and you are presenting this beautifully formatted document that has a lot of numbers and graphs. And and I think that element of those studies specifically, it's also, again, anytime there may be a seed of doubt, you just look at this, like, here's this chart and it's color-coded and this is a good result. And, and what was interesting, my... My cover story was that I was a PhD candidate in clinical psychology, and I have a few friends who are in that program, and I had them sit me down and kind of be like, these are the classes you're taking. These are the parts of the brain. And I was was so worried. I was like, these are all, these people all work in mental health. They're going to see right through that. And they never did. And so I'm looking at these studies and it's, you know, everyone, I'm an English major, I'm a journalist, and everyone in this room is just as equipped to understand what they're looking at as I am. Yet they've been in this industry for decades and decades and watching kind of this snowball effect of nobody is pushing back against this. And there were so many times that I would kind of look around me and be like, we all heard that there was a there's a part that I play in, in Gund of a song that a music therapist plays that a um, a student in their TTI facility had written. And it talks about having no place to call home and feeling trapped and you know, kind of, I should be grateful, but I don't know what to do. And in that moment, I'm like, okay, there's like, we all just heard that the lyrics are up on the screen. There's going to be some discussion of the role that being literally trapped in this program is playing in this and blown right by. It was, well, you know, she talks about hope and anyways, here's how our program helps. And there were so many times that I just wanted to stand up and be like, 
back up? Like, can we unpack something? Can we just stop just kind of putting these things out there and, and flying right by them? And that echo chamber, I think that, you know, of course, you talk a lot on this podcast, just those those echo chambers and that sort of reinforcement of and and that was that was part of why I did the undercover investigation. I was like, I don't want to be in an echo chamber myself. I don't want so many survivors' stories are across the decades, across experiences are are very similar. And I wanted to make sure that I was getting every perspective because I understand that as a journalist, it's very easy to, especially when you're handling such dramatic stories, you want to, this is true and this is the the one correct answer. And I didn't want to be in that echo chamber because I, I understand how dangerous that can be. And so going undercover, I it really just, it reinforced how easy it can be to hear, not even just not get pushback for those things, but hear them said back to you and, you know, hear people kind of telling you, oh, you're doing great work, you're doing great work. And I very much had to restrain myself from kind of prodding too hard. And and then at the same time, every time that I would, I would say something and be like, oh, like I just, I just kind of revealed what's going on. Like that was too obvious of a question. And it, they were just very, very transparent in a way that was incredibly startling to me. And there was one moment that I talk about in Gund where this conference had kind of like a lot of trade shows. They have representatives from external companies who many of them seemed like they just had a very basic functional understanding of NatsApp as their client. There was a insurance claim service and that kind of thing. And and one guy kind of said, oh, like, do you know about the transport? And and I was like, no, what's that? And that was the only time the the sub the energy very much changed. It got very quiet and they changed the subject really quickly. And that was at the very beginning of the conference, I believe the first night. And that was the only the only time that I felt like there was kind of a a crack that I could see through. And it came from someone who was sort of outside of that organization. And that, you know, again, just kind of to give you a sense of this environment, like it was on the an upper floor of a conference center, not a lot of natural light. And it just very much felt like, I was like, there's no outside world influence here in a very literal way. And that sort of the few times that I would, or I would talk to, again, representatives from the external companies that were there. And, and one of them, we were talking about that study that was presented and and she kind of mentioned and she was like, well, it it doesn't really make sense if they're collecting this data, you know, it's self-reported data, but but I get, you know, I guess, I guess it's fine. And then she moved on to talking about the results and and those those sort of glimmers of people who have not been in it as long or who are not as directly tied to the operation of this organization, kind of seeing something there that might not make sense, but then looking around them and seeing, well, everyone else says this makes sense and everyone else says that this is correct. So it must just be me and no no one else is is kind of reinforcing that or, or even engaging in that with me to to talk about that. So I have to be wrong. And it was just, it was very, very interesting and very troubling to see. It, it kind of made me realize there is a lot more work to be done, even to get people to understand 
as a first step, what some of the negative consequences may be of this industry. Mm. Oh my goodness. And I think also about the fact that you had developed this whole backstory. One would assume that if you're going to be working with people who run centers like this, they're going to have a psychology background uh, or even education or just know something about child development, something. But yeah, I think they probably didn't ask you questions because they would have no idea what to ask. Most of them don't have any training, any background. They 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 would have no idea. I think you probably learned more just having a conversation with your friends who are in those programs than they have ever had. And one would hope that they would be interested or feel that it's necessary to know about development and psychology and trauma and or addiction or whatever they're working with. I remember one time talking to someone who was saying that he helped to run one of these places. It was a new place in remember where it was, Colorado Springs. And I said, what do you need to get in terms of just qualification uh, in order to work there? And he said, um, well, my uncle runs the other place that's on the other side of that the city. It's like the other side of town, I guess you could call it. It's sort of on the border of the town and the next one. So so not answering my question, but that was that was all he needed. Oh, well, my uncle runs the other place. So I said, well, what does your uncle do? Like, what's his background? Oh, well, his dad ran. <laughs> okay, okay. What? Who knows how to do anything here? And who cares about needing to know and I, I think also the laughter, the kind of giggling that you heard is very unsettling and for a lot of reasons. And I've come across that too with people who are who are cult leaders, people also who are kind of narcissistic partners, like, <laughs> you know, driving someone crazy, making them mes- miserable. And then when the person says, I'm miserable, oh, well, that's not my fault. There is a detachment. There's a lack of sensitivity. There's a lack of responsibility knowing that for a lot of families, they feel like this is their last hope, knowing that sometimes it uses up all of their savings and they have nothing left, knowing that it can forever change their child, forever change the relationship with the child. It is never to be kind of giggled or laughed at in in that dismissive way. I'm sure that was really upsetting. It's interesting. You, You mentioned the lack of qualifications. Before I went undercover, I'd spoken to some former staff members and Every single one of them had found the job on Indeed or on some other job posting. And both uh, Charlie and Madison, who are former TTI staff members that I interviewed, it was like, you know, it was in Utah where the minimum wage is $7 an hour. This one was 15 bucks an hour. I had a bachelor's degree. And and there's a, a part where Madison discusses, you know, going into kind of interview as day staff. And they're like, would well, you want to be a teacher? She's like, I don't. I don't even have the qualifications to be a, a teacher outside of the mental health realm. And he's like, okay, well, you know, if you if you do want to be a teacher, just just let me know. And when I went undercover and, and I would do the same thing, I'd say, oh, like you're a program director, you know, how did you get into this? And the number of times that it was, you know, well, I got a degree in business management and then we found this piece of land. And, you know, not that it's necessarily negative to have someone who understands business and marketing on the team of of something, but the number of times that I would look up a place after talking to someone there and it's, you know, the people running these programs, creating this, I guess you could say curriculum, you know, they're great at at 
uh, finance and then I'm sure they could do my taxes more quickly than I could. But there's no background in let alone, you know, child development in any kind of because there are kids here who do need intervention, who are experiencing addiction. And and there's just no, no, none of that training. And I would listen to an answer of, you know, well, how did you start this program? And they would finish talking and I'd be like, I don't, I don't feel like I ever heard where you talked about your qualifications for this. You just, again, it was, we found this land, my dad owned this one. And there's so much, you know, well, I owned this place and then I cut off to, you know, branched off to make my own. And kind of, you can even visualize it as like a tree of just, I I can't think of quite the right word, but almost nepotism of, well, I worked here, so I can establish this one. And and even in my research, I came across an article called uh, Looking to License a Treatment Center in Utah, You're in for a Treat. And, you know, little blurb and it's, you know, five steps and, and there you are, as long as it's the building isn't actively on fire and the steps aren't too steep, there you go. And a lot of people may know that the day staff are underqualified or, you know, kind of don't know what they're getting into. But I I don't think that people understand that that lack of qualification, lack of understanding of what they're dealing with goes all the way up to the people literally creating the program that these kids are being put through. And I had very much expected at this conference, again, of kind of the upper echelons of this industry to be talking to people who would be able to see through a story about a PhD clinical psychology student or who would be able to, you know, I have a functional understanding of of mental health and especially after researching this show. And I was like, why do I feel like this is not my area of expertise? And I feel like, I feel like I have more of an understanding of this than a lot of the people I'm talking to. And that was really alarming to, you know, parents aren't talking to these program directors, they're talking to people kind of farther down the chain. And I think that there's an assumption that, oh, you know, it's a, it's got a NATSAP seal. So that's a seal. That's a little symbol. Like it, it's some kind of accreditation. And and that's not what it is. You, you pay to join NATSAP and you're in. And that was very, very clear being there in person that it is literally a pay to play and that you know, those little disclaimers of we don't accredit or recommend anything specifically. It's again, monthly fee and you are in and it takes it takes a lot to lose your NATSAP membership. Again, it took lawsuits for Diamond Ranch Academy to close after that that death um, last year. And it was not until right up until the very end that they were even denied their membership in NATSAP. There was no statement, no, hey, here's what happened. This is why they're no longer a member. It's just you go to the link on their page and it can't be found. And it's a lot of kind of burying that. And they will do as the bare minimum that the law requires, but they're not going to tell you about it. They're not going to bring attention to it. It's just very, you know, we don't talk about that and we move on. And there are there are programs with deaths, with reported deaths, whether from negligence and neglect or deaths by suicide that are still actively NATSAP members. And that same school, Diamond Ranch Academy, um, had had several previous publicized cases of abuse and I believe a death. And it was not until one that, you know, really got publicized that people knew about that they were like, okay, I guess we, I guess we have to remove this one, which is they're still getting the money from them. So to them, that's, oh, you're still part of the organization. 
Incredible. So I remember when I was starting out in this field in the late 80s, early 90s, that uh, I remember hearing about places like Sidhu and that are now infamous. But at the time, we're given so much credibility because the leaders were having their picture taken with, you know, people in government, I think the Reagans and the Just Say No people, right? So it lent itself to seeming like this was all okay and very high level. And so people are really persuaded by those visuals. And it is important for people to not be, uh, and in fact, wonder why they're trying so hard to do PR. Uh, you know, I'm, I went to a new specialist. It was a dentist, actually. So I was checking out a new dentist. I walked in and there was pictures on the wall of him, tons of five by sevens of him uh, shaking hands with all the famous patients he has. And I just made a U-turn <laughs> and I thought he's trying way too hard. So there is something really interesting about people also when you're talking about qualifications, like that, that they then get entangled in doing something that later on, because I've talked to a couple of people who were staff at these places, they can barely reconcile their own conscience. They did not know that these places are patterned off of Synanon, basically, and the game and the horrible, you know, attack, quote unquote, therapy. They just didn't know. And they weren't given that information. And I think you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that you need to research that. And so I think it hurts everyone, including the staff, if your conscience starts to get the better of you because you know you're being used in something that is really a business that only serves the organization, doesn't serve anyone else. I don't know if you had a chance to talk to to people also who who were staff or if there are kind of interactions you had even with people who were in these places that have really stayed with you. I'd love to hear about them. So I think... In talk, I did talk to several former staff members, and one of them um, had actually been sent away uh, herself as a, as a child and when she was about 11. And she started working there when she was in her early 20s. And she was kind of pulled in with, well, we're trauma-informed. This is different. You know, the, the facility, she said, you know, it looked a lot nicer than where I was sent. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, maybe this has gotten better. Um, I would love to be able to help people experience something that isn't what I was sent away for. And it wasn't until months and months in after she had, she'd experienced a traumatic brain injury from having to, uh, she had to restrain a girl who was trying to jump in front of semi-trucks, uh, was never given insurance information and all this mismanagement. She was monitored in a, there was an unrelated investigation of that facility and they brought her in for questioning about a specific staff member and management is right outside that door. And she's like, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I can talk to the state. And, you know, she kind of told me that it wasn't until she really started talking to a lot of her coworkers and realizing, you know, oh yeah, they didn't, you know, that window that someone shattered, they just put tape over it and didn't do anything. And that that's kind of dangerous. And I know how much these kids are paying in tuition. I know they can afford to fix that. And and it took so long to put those pieces together. And by the time you get there, you know, it's it's hard enough to be like, oh, you know, this job that I've been at for a year, I don't really want to spend my time this way, but I feel like I've sunk costs into it. That's hard enough. It's to sit down and have that realization. And then also I've been complicit in traumatizing children. And that realization 
I think that bringing Meg Applegate, the the CEO of Unsilenced, talks a lot about bringing former staff members and parents into that conversation and not holding those grudges because, again, that's how cults work. You can't, to an extent, fault someone for having been duped and having been taken into it. And if they realize that later, you know, one of, one of the staff members I spoke to was wonderful to talk to them and it, and it was a it was a great conversation and it just hurt to hear you know at the end of our conversation she said I hope you know I just hope that I haven't been complicit in anyone's trauma but I know in the back of my head that I probably have and I have to live with that for the rest of my life and what do you say to that you know that's just something you have to live with and I think that if we look at it as these former staff members who were roped into it, parents who are very much roped into it, it's all of us against that industry. We're not against those staff members. We're not against, you know, people who, again, have been victimized by the industry as a whole. And I think that probably the most impactful thing that that really stuck with me was one of the first interviews I did was talking to a guy his mid forties, uh, you know, he'd been out since the nineties. He escaped his facility in in the nineties and had a career in the military. He had kids and, and a wife. And I I asked him, it's like, how do you, you know, how did you bring this up with your wife at first? Like, what did you say to to bring this topic up? And he was like, oh, I just lied to her. Like, you're the only person that I've ever told this story to in this kind of detail because I tried to talk about it when I got out. And nobody believed me, so I just shut up about it. And that was so humbling for this man who, you know, again, has been out for decades, has built a life for himself, came out with his family. He hasn't spoken to his family. He came out with nothing and and really built this life for himself. And to hear that he had been shamed and, and silenced for so long, despite trying to talk to people about it and to be able to be that outlet for him and for others was was so humbling and, and it was so, but it, it also, it, it made me a little bit angry that I was like, you know, I, again, I'm not a qualified therapist. Like the fact that you haven't been able to or feel like you haven't had access to people who believe you, to qualified mental health care professionals who can help you work through that trauma the fact that this phone interview is the first time that you felt comfortable talking about this, it just really speaks to how lasting these effects can be and how long many survivors I spoke to, Caroline Cole, who co-hosted uh, Trapped in Treatment, a podcast produced by Paris Hilton about the troubled teen industry. And she said many times, you know, she didn't believe the program was a bad thing until Paris came out with her story. And she, and that's the story of a lot of survivors is that Paris Hilton, you know, putting her story out there really brought people into not only knowing that these places existed, but suddenly it was the more popular outlook was, oh, that's terrible. And for many survivors, that was the first time that they kind of had license to be like, well, that happened to me too. And I had always been told that that was what I needed and I just needed to get over it. And I was weak for for not having taken advantage of it and what have you. And for a lot of survivors, it wasn't until years, even decades after they got out, that they even realized that it was a bad thing. And I think that was 
very impactful for me to hear that it took something like Paris coming forward, not only for the public perception to shift, but for survivors who went through this to be able to trust themselves and to say, hey, like the things that I have known for a long time that I knew while I was in there are true and this wasn't okay. And it's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to not feel like this helped me. It's okay for me to have experienced this trauma even after I got out and to be able to be that outlet for people and to be able to get those stories out there. I think that contributing to that conversation, a lot of younger survivors on TikTok now are much more willing to kind of not only talk about their experiences, but show their faces, name their their schools, their programs, and being able to lend that specificity to here's exactly what happened to me. And that experience is mirrored across the decades, across whatever, you know, you were sent away for and finding that community. But I think that older survivors, a lot of times, it took many, many decades before they could even allow themselves to believe themselves and then allow themselves to really inhabit what they knew the whole time. Right. So I think when we're talking about having people who've had these experiences stay silent and sequestered and in shame or just that they have tried to talk about it and people didn't respond in a way that that felt good, respectful, like they were being believed is such a common experience across the board. Like I remember, you know, before there was a lot of education about cults and even just understanding the word to a greater degree. I remember, again, when I first got started in this, people would say, why do you do this work? Cults don't exist. Like, it's just a thing that they make up in movies. <laughs> What? Uh, so there was already that of just needing to help the public get that this happens, that people can be taken over, that people can be convinced of things. People can be convinced of things about themselves that aren't true. So got the, all this pushback. And the same thing then happened for the loved ones, for the families and friends who said, my kid got involved in a cult. Oh, well, that's just in your imagination. They're just wanting to, they're wanting to individuate and, and separate themselves and become adults. And so, you know, you can blame some group that they got involved in, but they're just trying to separate from you. No, um, no. And then the parents also weren't, given that kind of support at times because they were judged as parents. Well, if someone did believe in a cult, well, the reason your child got involved in it is because you didn't quite parent them well enough. So there was such a, um, it was like a relay of responsibility put back on the victim for making up stories, put back on the parents for it being their fault. And so there wasn't a light being shined on these organizations, these cult leaders, these people who are doing this to other people. So it doesn't surprise me that this poor person just sort of knew that they couldn't tell their story. And because when they tried, it just wasn't believed. I think also on top of that, a lot of the people who are the teenagers in these situations aren't believed to begin with. Um, their stories are discredited or they're being, they're seeming dramatic as well, you know, they're teenagers. So already they have to deal with the fact that they have no credibility, even though they should. 
You know, I'm now remembering a family I worked with years ago where the family got really taken in by a group of people who kind of moved into their social circle and took over. Like they just were grifters who took over and were using them and siphoning money off of them, et cetera. And there were adult siblings, like college age, and then there was a teenage or who was the youngest in the family. And she could see what was happening because she stayed sort of separate and she was in a room a lot, but she then from that distance could see the manipulation. And she'd also started to learn a little bit about it in school. And she just kept trying to hold a mirror up to her family, to the people who were doing this saying, uh, excuse me, nobody listened to her. And about four or five years later, they're all in my office. And the teenager said, can I say something that I've been wanting to say for the last five years? I told you so. I told you so many times. And you didn't believe me. You didn't listen to me because, oh, what does she know? She's 15. She, you know, so already then you have like the Paris Hiltons who are coming forward and, oh, couldn't have been that bad. And you must be making this up. So a lot of people are not believed. I'm sure it's extremely hard across the board. Yeah. And and I think that even so I was uh, I had read Paris's memoir, uh, which talks a lot about her experiences in the TTI. And I was in a a hotel lobby reading this this memoir and a, a member of the custodial staff came up to me and we were talking about reading and books and he looks at it and he was like, oh, she was sent to one of those schools for like rich kids, right? And I was like, oh, how long until your shift is over? Like I have, I have so much to tell you. And, and his, you know, he, I think that people who sort of saw, maybe they saw her documentary or they you know, hear kind of the highlights of it. And even then there is still kind of this, oh, you know, it's Paris Hilton. She got a DUI. She like sells perfume and she is, and and I think especially because of the persona that she constructed on The Simple Life. And it's like, oh, you know, she's just a delicate little flower. And I mean, I, I highly recommend that book. It's it's an excellent book, definitely content warning. It's it's very heavy, but again, it, it's kind of reading that and hearing someone be like, oh yeah, she was like sent to those boarding schools for rich kids. And it's 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 disheartening because it's, you know, if Paris Hilton, if there are still some people who won't even believe this from someone with the status of Paris Hilton, who even independent of her celebrity, she has a kid, she's a, you know, an adult functioning in the world. Like, I think that people, again, the reinforcement of of these programs to to parents that the sort of I, I spoke to a parent, Sharon, in the show, whose son is still uh, still in the TTI. She sent him away a couple years ago and she would say exact words and phrases that I had heard from admissions directors. And she had a, a very strong, she's very staunch that, you know, yes, I saw these bad reviews, but they just haven't matured to a place to understand that these things helped them. And yes, bad things happened, but I'm, you know, I'm not discounting those. Some people have had really great experiences and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a hard spot to be in because you don't, many of these parents, maybe their kid really does need intervention. Maybe they do believe their kid needs intervention. They're loving, well-meaning, great parents. And you don't want to demonize those, those parents because, you know, they dig their heels in further. Like I would never intentionally hurt my child what do you mean and that was something that meg in the show the the ceo of unsilenced she's done a lot of activism work and her parents 
were when she came to them about, hey, she had a peer in the program had had died by suicide and, and it made her realize, you know, wait a minute, like, I think that this was abusive. And when she eventually went to her parents, it was a long process of dealing with the trauma of having made a decision that, you know, inadvertently harmed their child. And she was lucky enough that her parents have supported her in her activism. They've, you know, traveled with her when she speaks in front of legislatures, but that is not common. And and it's very frequent that when kids try to say, hey, you know, what you did hurt me and, and here's what I experienced, it puts parents in a position to be like, well, I would I would never hurt you and, and it helped you and you just don't know it yet. And I, I even spoke to survivors who were like, I never really talked to my parents about it because I know they spent so much money on it and I know that they weren't trying to hurt me and I don't want them to feel guilty. And it puts survivors in a, in a very tough spot where often they understand that their parents were victimized by do it now. Your kid's going to die. This is the best option. We're professionals. And it's interesting too, because, you know, these aren't, even if they are still, you know, they get out and they're 18 or they're 19 or even those recent survivors, these aren't disgruntled, bitter kids with a grudge. These are kids who were sent into this program, you know, say by their parents specifically. And even immediately after getting out, some of these teenagers have empathy for that nuance of of their parents having been victimized to an extent as well. And I think that takes, you know, I I was a teen, I was, I got mad at my parents and held grudges for stuff that's so much less consequential. You know, you didn't, just little, little things that, oh, you hurt me by not letting me go to the ball with my friends. And like the the maturity that's required to understand that the people who victimized you were also victimized, that it's such a complex issue. And, and I think it's it's great that, you know, the movement is open to parents, especially, I think, give, give it a lot of credibility where it's like, you know, if you have the maturity, if you have the empathy to extend an olive branch to your kid to say, you know, obviously no one has to forgive if they don't want to, but to say, this is an explanation, not an excuse. I was told that this would help you. I wanted you to get help. And I see now that that was the wrong choice to make. And bringing those parents over into the movement, I think is really important because it, as much as it would be great if we could give credibility to the survivors, to these teenagers, I think that doesn't happen a lot of the time. And I think that former staff members and parents who are saying, hey, we were also taken advantage of. People see that and it's like, okay, so we have so many survivor stories and parents saying, this is why we sent our kid away and, and we were we were duped. And I think that that's really important that we give people time and that we don't automatically say, even that conversation I had with that mother, I was expecting to come out of it being like, oh, I I can't believe she would make this decision. She's such a bad person. I'm so angry. And I, and I came out of it and just felt very defeated. And I was like, I just spent an hour talking to someone who really cares about her child, who really understands that it takes work on the family side, who under who wants their kid to succeed in life. And I can't be mad at her. I, I understand what happened. And I see her parroting the language that was told to me when I posed as a parent. And it's so frustrating, but it's also, again, giving it time and, you know, understanding that 
the more that you demonize and kind of lambast, especially specific parents for making this choice, the more that it's going to be hard to sit down and, and confront themselves and say like, yeah, I I did this and I, I shouldn't have, or this, you know, what my kid is telling me about their experience is true. And I want to try to, to mend that relationship. And I think that is so important. Right. So going back to this idea that kids sometimes have this real sense of conscientiousness that and sensitivity about what their parents gave to make this happen for them with a good intention, I think is really lovely. And it says a lot about their conscience and and how much they do care about other people's emotions, especially their family. And it is also true. And talking to Meg, who's a previous guest on the show who talked about talking to her parents, I will tell a lot of parents that there really is no cost in the way they think there's going to be a cost in saying, I'm sorry. In fact, there's a great payout because I know that there are people who I work with of all ages, but who have dealt with the loss of a parent. And one of the major regrets sometimes in that relationship is I never heard my father or my mother say, I'm sorry. It just comes up so often. That it is a really significant phrase, and it doesn't mean as a parent that you're saying, I take responsibility for everything in this situation. I'm just sorry that I didn't know that I was agreeing to something that was going to harm you. And now that I know that, can I be helpful to you in your healing? I'm here for you. It's just two sentences, (laughs) and it means everything. Um, But I think that there are a lot of people who have also been raised before they became parents to learn that an apology is a sign of weakness. But it actually is quite the opposite. And it is entirely healing and symbolic of strength and strength of your relationship and your bravery in saying something that's uncomfortable and looking at something that's uncomfortable on behalf of your kid. If you feel like you did something unwittingly that harmed them, then be a part of their healing by acknowledging your part in it. And then looking together with your child at who the real culprit was and is, but still you're there with them alongside them. I think it's it's huge. And I think understanding too that there can be victimization and complicity can coexist just because you're saying, you know, you as a parent are saying, I'm sorry that I sent you there, you know, because that was an action that that you took, a decision that you made, but under duress. But you're, what you aren't saying is, you know, I apologize for perpetrating the abuse that occurred there. Like you're apologizing for a role that you played that led to that happening. And, you know, again, I think it's, it's important as well that parents don't use their own, the the fact that the industry took advantage of them in their time of need as an excuse, but as an explanation. And, you know, the, the steps that you can take towards understanding that you as a parent and your child were both victimized to an extent, you as a parent also had a role in sending your kid away, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be, I did absolutely nothing wrong. And it doesn't have to be every single thing that happened after I made that choice was exactly my fault. And in talking about this, there's there's so much nuance based on you know every individual situation. And there are, of course, I even spoke to survivors whose parents sent them away because they wanted them out of their hair or as a specific punishment. That absolutely happens. This isn't, you know, there are certainly parents who are 
who just had bad intentions. But I think that most often, and I think that what's most insidious about this industry is it takes advantage of an existing lack of resources, of an existing lack of accessibility to those resources when they do exist, and gives parents who are well-meaning, who are desperate, who maybe have blinders on that they just want to get their kid immediate help. And the healing process, I think that now that there's more information available, I think it, it, I've seen it become more common that it, you know, six months, a year after you get out, you can kind of have that conversation with your family because you have something to back it up as opposed to decades later. We haven't spoken since then. I've spoke to several survivors and asked them what their relationship is like with their family. And it's, you know, I haven't seen them since. And whether that's because their families disowned them or because they didn't, you know, want to have that relationship, it can be devastating to a relationship with the family, but it absolutely doesn't have to be. And there can be stories of forgiveness and and not, you know, of course, you don't have to forget. You also don't have to forgive. But I think that I think that just that acknowledgement of I did not intend for this to happen. This was not what I wanted to come out of this, but it is what came out of it. And part of that is on me and opening that up, you know, whether your kid maybe in several years, they'll be willing to open that door again and to talk about it. And maybe it'll be immediate. But I think that bringing parents into that conversation is is a huge part of what is going to help pursue alternatives. It's beautifully said. And I agree. And just as we're kind of finishing up, I would love to hear your sense of what people need to watch out for. What are the signs to watch out for, the warning signs that something is a fraudulent group? What to notice that is happening there? What to notice that's not there? Because I think it can sometimes be different for different places, but there are usually some overlaps, really important things. Uh, And I want people to be able to be smart and safe consumers of any kind of help for their children. So what have you learned about what, what we all need to watch out for? I think that the first thing is become internet literate. And I think that pretty much anything you do these days, like your biggest resource is going to be the internet. You can't you can't send a kid to a place based on a pamphlet that they send you by mail. And I think that looking at, you know, understanding, Unsilenced actually has a, a wonderful list of kind of what to look for specifically. But one big thing is, is there a level system or a phase system that's tied to incentives and privileges that are just basic needs? And this is most clear in wilderness settings where if you don't make your points for that day, you don't get a blanket tonight and it's winter and we're in Idaho or you don't get your can of beans that's going to fuel you for the four hours of hiking today because of your behavior. It's that sort of behavioral modification using it's it goes by a lot of different names. I've seen levels. The level system is not used as a phrase as much anymore because of that pushback. But whether it's levels or phases it gives this illusion of, oh, okay, there's a roadmap. They're not going to be here forever. They're going to work up to level five and then they're going to graduate. And those levels are very often used to get more money out of parents to keep kids there longer because they'll say, yeah, you know, your kid could have graduated. We said a year and they're on level five, but oh, you know, they they did this thing and now they're on level four. So we're going to have to keep them. And so that that level system is used 
as kind of a justification for keeping kids there longer. And it's also attached to incentives. And and even if it's not in wilderness, those quote unquote privileges are often reading, writing, um, the length of time that you're able to contact your family. And that's, I think, one of the first things that parents need to ask when they're investigating any kind of, especially inpatient treatment, but any kind of treatment is what can I, if I decide on a Tuesday morning that I'm going to come down and visit my kid, will I get to go in there and talk to my child alone? Will I get to see my child? Does my child have internet access? Do they have a phone? Do they have a direct line to me? There's often sort of a sequester period of 30, 60, 90 days of no contact with your family right when you get into the program. And and there's various justifications for this, uh, again, very similar to a cult where, you know, you want to disconnect from your old life. And some places will say, don't send your kid pictures of the family. Don't send your kid pictures of the friend. We're starting fresh. And I think the biggest thing to look for before you even consider a program is what level of contact will I have with my kid and what power do I have and what power does my kid have to remove themselves from this program? And it varies a lot by state. I know that certain states like California, if a child is experiencing abuse, they are allowed to remove themselves before they're 18. In Utah, where there are a lot of uh, troubled teen industry programs, it's a parent's right state and that's not the case. And you... As a parent, you need to be making yourself open and available to your kid. Tell me what's happening here, not through a letter that you, you know, wrote with maybe someone looking over your shoulder or someone dictating, but through in-person frequent visits in a situation where it is an inpatient treatment where you, you know, for whatever reason, can't keep them at home, can't keep them in their community. If it really must be inpatient, I think parents need to make sure that they are able to not only visit their child, but talk to their child without monitoring, not on the phone, not through a letter, not through an email, but in person. And you'll see these places are often very remote. Uh, They encourage sending your kid out of state because, you know, if you're a working parent, it's a lot harder to make a flight to go and see your kid for a few minutes than it is to, you know, drop by after work. And that communication, that ability for kids to talk to their parents to, you know, maybe raise some alarm bells early is crucial. And even just as a parent, I think a lot of people think, well, there's no way I would sign over custody of my kid. There's no way I would agree not to have contact with my kid. And what I saw in my reporting is it's very easy to be convinced that that's the best thing for your kid. And I think keeping in mind that instinct that you have as a parent that you want to be able to see and talk to your kid and know what's going on with your kid and trust that and and understand that you are going to be, these places will try to convince you that your contact with your child will stunt their progress and keep them from moving forward. And that's never true. Contact with your kid, open, frequent in-person contact with your child is the most important. And the moment that 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 you hear language around why that's a bad idea or why that might not happen, or if that's the first question you ask and it's met with, well, you you won't, but here's why. Like, bail. That's your invitation to bail immediately. Right. And so much of this communication is monitored, even on the phone there, and someone's standing next to you or listening in. And then your child might get punished for saying something uh, or something like you're saying, their basic needs not taken care of, something withheld that should never be withheld. Um, 
because they said something they shouldn't or they disclosed something. And it, it really is, you know, treating your children uh, like they are criminals, like they're felons. Uh, and even then, still people in prison get a blanket at night. And so I think it is so important for you to be here sharing about not only all the information that you have accrued, but what you experienced yourself in your interactions and just being in that environment of people in this field and how they seem to be approaching it and how upsetting, disturbing that that was. And also, you know, acting because there isn't someone there, at least they didn't know there was someone there from the outside, acting like they are on an island unto themselves because they are to a great degree. So thank you. Thank you so much for your work and for your continued exposure of this and really shedding a light on something that has remained in the shadows for way too long. And people have gotten away with things that they really shouldn't, which I think just makes them more dangerous. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really hope that people enjoy the podcast and also, you know, get some of those perspectives that I don't think are out there that I think are really important as the legislation takes off and Paris's story and, you know, there's new documentaries coming out about it. I think that we need to keep in mind a lot of the things that I that I talk about on the show and not just the sensational aspect of what happens in that facility, but what happens to get there, how we have gotten there as a society, how people get there as individuals, and then what happens afterwards, I think is is very important. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you and to tackle this really difficult and disturbing subject. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. One more thing before you go. Thank you, thank you to Emma. It is so upsetting to hear about these kinds of stories, you know, where people are so incredibly mistreated and misunderstood. When you go to some of these treatment centers and then need treatment because you were in the treatment center, I don't think you can call it a treatment center anymore. I think it's something that is damaging, that is dangerous, that is so irresponsible, and is so rejecting of the individual, really getting to know them, really helping them understand themselves and Feeling accepted and empowered? No, that just does not happen. And instead, their self gets rejected. You are not okay the way you are. We are going to somehow change you. We're going to convince you that you need to be a different way, that you need to behave a different way. And that message is so destructive. But it's also something, as Emma was talking about, that happens very often with these teen treatment places that people are sent just because their family doesn't accept them. So I know because I've worked with them, I know a number of people 
who have been sent to some of these places because they did take drugs. But that wasn't the problem. They actually were not getting out of control with it. They were self-medicating because there was another problem. It's one of the reasons that I have an issue with 12-step programs, even though I know for some people they are life-saving, and I wouldn't want to take that away from them. But the issue that I have time and time again is that people have to call themselves addicts. They have to call themselves alcoholics. They have to call themselves drug addicts, drug abusers. And for most people, a vast majority, that is not the issue. That is not the core issue. It is a way of numbing the pain of something else. And it's a way to feel emboldened in your life if you're on something because you have social anxiety and that's the issue. It doesn't get to the heart, doesn't get to the root. And it just pathologizes the reaction, the behavioral reaction to another problem that just doesn't get discussed and you don't get help with it. And so people who, let's say, are suffering from tremendous depression and are told, oh, well, if you try this, you might feel better. (laughs) Then they try that, and then they get sent somewhere for having tried that. But who's dealing with the depression? And there are some people also who have so many strict rules in their family system growing up that they're trying to push the walls out, seeing kind of where they have some freedom. And so they might go on a joyride or they might climb out the window because everything is so, so, so structured, so many rules that they're just looking for a little bit of freedom, which is something that's highly connected to just being a human being. And then they get sent somewhere for being out of control. And then their freedom is taken away. Then they're caged again. How does this help? So often, I hear people also being told that they need to go to these places because their parents have noticed that they're gay and want them to kind of have that taken out of them. It must feel strange saying it because it just sounds insane. And it's so not in line with mm, how identity works. But I also think now there are a number of people who are talking about transitioning from male to female, female to male, and that is not okay with their family and they're sent to these places for somehow having out-of-control behavior and all they're really trying to do is become the person who they wish they could see in the mirror that matches how they feel inside. And so then they're sent somewhere where they are made to feel like they are really out of control. They are given labels to talk about them being awful people, terrible, I don't know, out of control teens. 
And no one really gets a chance to say, I was just unhappy or I wasn't feeling comfortable in my own skin. I was trying to see who I really was. But within these treatment centers, individuality does not matter. Conformity absolutely matters. So how do you find out who you really are when you're told what is wrong with you? And you also need to act like everybody else there and do as everyone else does. There is so much that's contrary to human development in these places. And I think that that's part and parcel for when you have something like this run by people who really know nothing a lot of the time. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. They haven't taken one course in really anything sometimes, but not in human development, uh, psychology, education, any of it. They have no qualifications in these places, usually, that are so destructive. What I think is also important, though, when we talk about people being sent off. Now, for some people, I have heard them say, I was really going down a very bad path. I was actually scaring myself. And I did need to have a chance to regroup and to be somewhere where I could kind of settle into understanding myself and getting help and having my parents also incorporated into my treatment so that they could learn about what I needed and who I was and what I needed from them as parents. That is a beautiful system that I just described that is very possible, but not in these places. Because having families all get along, having a person really mm, feel good about themselves when they leave, uh, none of that matters in these destructive treatment centers. Most importantly, though, when I talk to people who have been sent off, carted off, kidnapped in the middle of the night, they will often say to me that even though they would go to these places and have people pointing in their face and shouting at them and telling them what's wrong with them and defining them and diagnosing them, one thing they were never asked by the people at these centers or by their families before the families sent them off there was this. What's the matter? You seem to be having a hard time. And how can I help you? When people are not asked, what's wrong? Then instead are told what's wrong with them or are just made to feel shame that they're acting out because of something being wrong then they never really feel like there's an opportunity to go back to that moment that could have been so simple before mm, they were sent away somewhere to help control their behavior. And this little simple moment of you having, let's say, let's say you're a parent and your child is mm, feeling out of control or seeming out of control, you want to always start with that. What's the matter? And how can I help? 
And it could also be that a teenager doesn't have the words, and so you can sit with them and help them find the words. And they might be feeling hostile in the moment and might reject your asking them these questions and your attempt to want to connect. So give them another chance when they're feeling calmer. Young adults and teens have the hardest time controlling their emotions. And very often, though, you can find that they'll get calmer after a little while, and that's the time to have the conversation. But when I hear people say, oh, I was sent somewhere for five, six, seven years, but no one asked me what was wrong, it breaks my heart. Because that could have solved so much from the beginning. It could have given the people who love them answers about what was wrong and what they needed. It would give an explanation about some of their behaviors, or if not all of their behaviors, as being a way to address what was wrong. And it would also give that teenager a chance to really feel like their feelings matter, and they matter, and the people around them want to hear what's on their mind. So remember that the next time things feel very complicated and you get into kind of knockdown, drag out, or it gets very contentious and you're screaming, if there's a way to turn the volume down, but bring it down to its very simple level of asking someone, what's the matter and how can I help? People want to feel understood. People want to feel seen. People want to feel heard and believed. And it's very healing. And in those moments, there's a chance to have it be addressed, whatever it is, in a much healthier and much calmer and much more psychologically aware and gentle way. Take good care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.